The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. The audio version performed by the Miami Radio Players. When Mr. Hiram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We've not cared to live in the place ourselves since my grand-aunt, the Dowager Duchess, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered. She was frightened by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. And I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family. My lord, I will take the furniture and the ghost. I come from America, a modern country. I reckon if there was such a thing as a ghost in England, we'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums or on the road as a show. Well, I fear that the ghost exists. It's been well known since 1584 and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family. So does the family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. But there is no such thing, sir, as a ghost. Well, if you don't mind a ghost in the house, it is all right. Only you must remember I warned you. A few weeks after this, the purchase was completed, and the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Miss Lucretia R. Tapan of West 53rd Street, had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome middle-aged woman with fine eyes and a superb profile. She had a magnificent constitution and a really wonderful amount of animal spirits. Indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that England and America have everything in common nowadays, except, of course, language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism, which he never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man. Miss Virginia E. Otis was a little girl of 15, lithe and lovely as a fawn, and with a fine freedom in her large blue eyes. After Virginia came the twins, delightful boys, who were usually called the Stars and Stripes, as they were always getting caned. As Mr. Otis and his family set out in high spirits for Canterville Chase on a lovely July evening, the air was delicate with the scent of pine woods. Now and then they heard a wood pigeon brooding over its own sweet voice, or saw, deep in a rustling fern, the burnished breast of the pheasant. Little squirrels peered at them from beneath the beeches, and the rabbits scudded away through the brushwood with their white tails in the air. As they entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky became suddenly overcast with clouds. A curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere. A great flight of rooks passed silently over their heads. Before they reached the house, some big drops of rain had fallen. 
Standing on the steps to receive them was an old lady, neatly dressed in black silk, with a white apron. This was Mrs. Umney, the housekeeper, whom Mrs. Otis had earnestly requested to keep on in her former position with Lady Canterville. I bid you welcome at Canterville Chase. Tea is laid out for you in the library after you've taken off your wraps. What a beautiful stained glass window there is at the end of the hall. And tea is very much what we need, but I am afraid something has been spilt there on the floor by the fireplace. Yes, madam, blood has been spilt on that spot. How horrid. I don't at all care for blood stains in the sitting room. It must be removed at once. It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville who was murdered on that very spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances. His body has never been discovered, but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase. The bloodstain has been much admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed. That is all nonsense, Mrs. Omni. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and paragon detergent will clean it up in no time. See, I myself can remove it simply by kneeling down and scouring the floor with his small stick. No trace can now be seen. I knew Pinkerton would do it. Oh, what a monstrous climate. Oh. My dear Hiram, Mrs. Omni has fainted. What can we do with a woman who faints? Charge it to her like breakage. She won't faint after that. Oh! Ah, Mrs. Omni has come too, fortunately. I have seen things with my own eyes, madam, that would make any Christian's hair stand on end. And many and many a night I have not closed my eyes in sleep for the awful things that are done here. Well, Mrs. Omni... We are not afraid of ghosts, and we hope your increase of salary will improve your sleep. Oh, may the blessings of Providence be upon you. Good night, sir. The next morning, however, when they came down to breakfast, they found that terrible stain of blood once again on the floor. I don't think it can be the fall of the Paragon detergent, for I've tried that with everything. It must be the ghost. However, I shall rub out the stain a second time. The second morning it appeared again. The third morning also. It was there. Although, the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis himself, and the key carried upstairs. This is very interesting. I may have been too dogmatic in my denial of the existence of ghosts. I shall immediately join the Psychical Society. I feel it my duty to write a letter to the makers of Paragon Detergents on the permanence of sanguineous stains when connected with crime. The next day was warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening, the whole family went out for a drive. They did not return home till nine o'clock when they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, and only such subjects were discussed as a difficulty of obtaining buckwheat cakes and hominy, the importance of Boston in the development of the world's soul, 
and the sweetness of the New York accent as compared to the London drawl. At 11 o'clock, the family retired to bed, and by half past 11, all the lights were out. What curious sound is this to be heard at one o'clock in the morning? My pulse is normal. I feel quite calm. So this cannot be a fever. I shall see what is outside my door. Right in front of him, he saw in the wan moonlight an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were red as burning coals. Long gray hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. His antique garments were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty chains. My dear sir, I really must insist upon you oiling those chains, and have brought you for that purpose a small bottle of the Tammany Rising Sun Lubricator. It is said to be completely efficacious upon application. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles, and would be happy to supply you with more should you require it. I shall now retire to rest. For a while, the Canterville ghost stood quite motionless in natural indignation. Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, emitting a ghastly green light. Ah, ah. Just as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, the door to the twins' room opened. Quick! Throw the pillow! Take that! Bullseye! Hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape, the ghost vanished through the wainscoting and the house became quiet again. On reaching a small secret chamber in the left wing, he leaned up against a moonbeam to recover his breath and began to try and realize his position. Never in a brilliant and uninterrupted career of 300 years had he been so grossly insulted. He thought of the dowager duchess, whom he had frightened into a fit, as she stood before the glass in her lace and diamonds. Help! Help! Of old Madame Tremoliac, confined to her bed with brain fever after seeing a skeleton seated in her chair reading her diary. Of the wicked Lord Canterville found choking in his dressing room with the knave of diamonds halfway down his throat who swore the ghost made him swallow it. He smiled bitterly as he went over all his most celebrated performances, such as Red Reuben, The Strangled Babe, and Gaunt Gibeon, the bloodsucker of Bexley Moor. And after all this, some wretched modern Americans offer him the rising sun lubricator and throw pillows at his head. It was quite unbearable. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance and remained till daylight in an attitude of deep thought. The next morning, the Otis family met at breakfast. Mr. Otis was a little annoyed to find that his present had not been accepted. I have no wish to do the ghost any personal injury. And I must say, considering the length of time he has been in the house, I don't think it is at all polite to throw pillows at him. On the other hand, if he really declines to use the rising sun lubricator, 
we shall have to take his chains from him. It would be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on outside the bedrooms. And we must not forget to make bets on the color of the bloodstain tomorrow. Yesterday was a dull red, before that vermilion, and today it was emerald green. The second appearance of the ghost was on Sunday night, shortly after they had gone to bed. And everyone rushed down to the hall. Oh dear, that large old suit of armor has fallen on the stone floor. Use the pea shooters! Bullseye! A ghost appears to have hurt his knee and is sitting in the chair. Hold your hands up, sir. This revolver is loaded. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage. (laughs) And swept through them like a mist, extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed and leaving them all in darkness. On reaching the top of the staircase, he recovered and determined to give them his celebrated peal of demoniac laughter, which had once turned Lord Raker's wig gray in a single night. (laughs) As the vaulted roof rang and rang again, Mrs. Otis came out of her bedroom in a light blue dressing gown. I am afraid you are far from well, and so I've brought you a bottle of Dr. Doble's tincture. If it is indigestion, you will find it a most excellent remedy. Glaring at her in fury, the ghost was about to turn himself into the black dog, a famous accomplishment of his, which contributed in the past to the permanent idiocy of Lord Canterville's uncle. When the sound of the twins' approaching footsteps made him hesitate in his fell purpose, and so he contented himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent and vanished with a deep churchyard groan. On reaching his room, he entirely broke down. I had hoped that even modern Americans would be thrilled by the sight of a specter in armor. But I was completely overpowered by the weight of the huge breastplate, falling so heavily on the stone pavement. Both my knees are bruised severely. For some days after, he was extremely ill and hardly stirred out of his room at all, except to keep the bloodstain in proper repair. However, by taking great care of himself, he recovered and resolved to make a third attempt to frighten Mr. Otis and his family. What shall I choose from my wardrobe? Aha! I have it! My slouched hat with a red feather, my shroud with the frills at the neck and wrist, and my rusty dagger. That evening, a violent storm came on, and the wind was so high, all the windows and doors in the old house shook. Exactly the weather I love. I shall make my way quietly to the young man's room, and I will stand at the foot of his bed and stab myself three times in the throat to the sound of slow music. I bear Mr. Washington Otis a special grudge, since he is in the habit of removing my famous Canterville bloodstain with Pinkerton's Paragon detergent. Once I have reduced him to a condition of abject terror, I shall proceed to the room occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Otis. 
I shall place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead, and I shall hiss into her husband's ear the awful secrets of the Charnel house. Little Virginia Otis has never insulted me, and besides is very pretty and gentle, so a few hollow groans from the wardrobe might be sufficient. As if for the twins, I shall teach them both a lesson. I shall sit upon their chests so as to produce the stifling effects of a nightmare. Then I shall stand between them as a green, icy, cold corpse. And once they are paralyzed with fear, I shall throw off my winding sheet and crawl around the room with white bleached bones and one rolling eyeball in my character of dumb Daniel, the suicide skeleton. At half-past ten, the ghost heard the family going to bed. For some time, he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins. But at a quarter past eleven, all was still, and at midnight he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window panes, the raven croaked from the old yew tree, and the wind wandered moaning around the house like a lost soul. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting with an evil smile on his cruel, wrinkled mouth, and the moon hid her face in a cloud as on and on and on he glided like an evil shadow, the very darkness seeming to loathe him as he passed. Finally, he reached the corner of the passage that led to the luckless Washington's room. For a moment, he paused there, the wind blowing his long gray locks about his head. He chuckled to himself and turned the corner, but no sooner had he done so than with a piteous wail, he fell back and hid his blanched face in his long bony hands. What horrible specter do I see before me? Motionless as a carved image, monstrous as a madman's dream. His face, round, fat, and white, where hideous laughter seems to have contorted his features into an eternal grin. His eyes streaming with scarlet light, his mouth a well of fire. He bears a placard on his breast with strange writing in antique characters. No doubt some scroll of shame, some record of wild sins. And in his right hand there is a sword of gleaming steel. Never having seen a ghost before, the ghost naturally was terribly frightened, and he fled back to his room, tripping up in his long winding sheet as he sped down the corridor, finally dropping the rusty dagger into Mr. Otis's boots, where it was found in the morning by the butler. Once in the privacy of his own apartment, he flung himself down on his small pallet bed and hid his face under the clothes. After a time, his spirit asserted itself, and he determined to go out and speak to the other ghost as soon as it was daylight. Just as the dawn was touching the hills with silver, he returned to the spot where he first laid eyes on the grisly phantom, feeling that, after all, two ghosts were better than one. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Some horror seems to have happened to my new acquaintance. The light has entirely left his eyes. His sword has fallen from his hand, and he is leaning against the wall in a strained and uncomfortable attitude. The ghost rushed forward and seized the specter in his arms. When to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled on the floor, and he found himself clasping a white bed curtain with a sweeping brush and a hollow turnip lying at the feet. Unable to understand this curious transformation, he clutched the placard with feverish haste, and there... 
in the gray morning light, he read these awful words. Ye odious ghosty, ye only true and originally spook. Beware of ye imitaciones. All others are counterfeity. I have been tricked, foiled, and outwitted. When Chanticleer the cock crows twice, deeds of blood shall be wrought, and murder walk abroad with silent feet. <laughs> Perdition sees the naughty fowl that will not crow twice. I have seen the day when I would have run him through the throat and made him crow for me. He then retired to a comfortable lead coffin and stayed there till evening. I got a feeling, you know that I love.